Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week, I sit down with youth engagement and communications specialist, Amber Richardson, to talk about Thanksgiving, historical revisionism, and how understanding our past is a first step towards a better future. Enjoy. my nervousness and anxiety around this episode is because number one i am not an expert unlike you know u.s federal indian policy right (laughs) um and typically i feel like there's this pressure you know for anyone who is a member of any sort of like minority group or whatever that when you start talking about things it feels as though right you're not a you're not a representative of of all 500 we'll get into that yeah. yeah But I think like I don't speak for everybody. No, for sure, and, and I think that's to. I think that's important too. Yeah. Where to start? Hmm. Shall I introduce myself? You can. That's something I've never had someone do. Well, you know, know, for a lot of natives, it's really important when we start talking. Period. That we introduce ourselves and. Do it in our language if we can, which is not always mm. something that people can do for a variety of terrible, awful reasons, like assimilationist policies. Mm-hmm. You're giving me that look. We'll probably get into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, the way I usually introduce myself mm-hmm. is Biwo Amber Minkileke Wa, Halawasaponi Wa, Hollister, North Carolina, Watiwa. And that just says, Hi, I'm Amber. I'm Halawasaponi. That's my tribe. Mm-hmm. And I'm from Hollister, North Carolina. And so that's like one of the only phrases I really know. I think <laughs> I think that you say, hi, friend, why don't you sit down by saying, um, what is it? Or something like that. So there was like a language class that happened one mm-hmm. summer before I went off to boarding school in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and yeah. In that like six week period, Mm -hmm. I managed to learn and retain like two things. (laughs) So those are my only two tricks. (laughs) That's all I got. That's all I got. But it's super important. So I know you because we live together. Um, And man, you didn't even like playing Halo when you moved in. Mm, mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy to me because that has been like foundation. Halo has been really foundational to many of the intense conversations you oh and I have goodness. had. So many. Not to mention a couple of like just emotionally overwhelming rounds where I'm sitting there with tears streaming down my face and just shooting you relentlessly. And I'm just like, I can't explain why, but this is exactly what I need. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> Which is usually true because I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> now I'm going to stick you with a yes. grenade. <laughs> No, I am going to stick you with a grenade because I'm crying and I'm just, I'm doing it in front of another human and I feel weird and I just need to get it out by just shooting something. Um, So yeah. Yeah. Good old Halo. It's interesting how banal all of that has been. Like, and I feel really lucky when I think about living here in this house that Mm -hmm. we are able to have those conversations, which is really, really cool. I didn't. I didn't know for a long time that you worked at Aspen or what you were working. Like it took. It took me a couple months to really get a handle on what you did and like how both intimidatingly, like intimidatingly awesome that was, and like very productive and important. But also how little I actually understood about the need for youth outreach and also what the Aspen Institute did. Like I knew they were a thing. I kind of had a sense of what they mm-hmm. did, but. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what your degree is in because I want to ask what got you into uh, coordinating youth outreach with yeah. native tribes, but yeah, I can't remember what your degree is in, <laughs> which would be super helpful in this moment. Sure. Great. Um, so I uh, studied psychology mm-hmm. in college, and that's really interesting because I just thought that I always wanted to be a therapist, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, therapy in my very small rural hometown of Hollister, North Carolina is not really a thing that people do regularly, or Mm -hmm. if they do, they don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say like the stigma is super amplified in that kind of setting. Um, So I don't even really know what made me feel like that was something I could do. But I remember having this one professor in college who um, 
asked me why psychology and I said well I just want to help people and she was like well you're not going to do you're not going to be really impactful one-on-one which you know I've got several awesome therapists who give me 10,000 reasons to contradict that Mm -hmm. um but she was like if you really want to make like widespread change you have to do it at a systems level Mm -hmm. and I was like okay all right I kind of get that But anyway, as far as like the youth engagement stuff, that was just always a part of like who I was and my experience. Um, I've just always been involved in my tribal community. Mm -hmm. My dad was vice chief, I think, for seven years. And my mom taught at our tribal school for like 16. Um, And then we were also a powwow family, which meant that we would go around and dance. And my brother sings and drums. Um, and I was a competition fancy dancer for many years, and I was pretty good at it, mm-hmm. I might add. Um, I like to say that I retired on a high note. <laughs> just means that like <laughs> I didn't allow myself to go out there and get like real winded <laughs> with the young whippersnappers. <laughs> Haven't done that in a little while. But yeah, just like being involved was just something that you did. Like Tuesday, was it Tuesday night that we had culture class and you would go and learn how to dance and sing and count in the language or bead or do pottery mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and it was just expected that you would be there. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you will be there. You will dance. Like you will be involved in these things. Um, and I would ask my dad about things I had heard at tribal meetings or things I had heard at council meetings. Um, so that was always really important, but like quote unquote youth engagement was just like hanging out with your friends mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. For me, I was involved in this organization called the North Carolina Native American Youth Organization, or NICNAO. And one of the big things we did was plan a conference every year. And so, you know, again, like people see that as like youth organizing or, again, youth engagement. But to me, it was like, oh, I get to see all my Native friends from like all the eight tribes of North Carolina coming together, you know, Mm -hmm. week after week or month after month to plan this conference. So that's just like a fun, cool thing you do. Mm -hmm. And so later, I don't know, I guess I was good with the youth. Um, (laughs) So people just kept putting me in positions to speak Mm. and, you know, I guess do what we would think of as mentorship. Although like people I've mentored have taught me way more than I think I've taught them. As far as like what I do at Aspen, that was just a continuation of what I was doing at the state level. Um, And it was terrifying for me because... I'm just coming from it like this is what I've done in my community and in my state, but I don't know enough about the over 567 tribes that Mm -hmm. are in the United States. And by the way, those are just the ones that the U.S. federal government recognizes. Mm -hmm. So I'm from a state recognized tribe. And that was something that like coming into this space, I was very self-conscious about um, because I just don't meet very many state recognized tribal members in my work. And so I just I felt really nervous about that and like am I even going to be able to contribute Um, but I found that like my job thankfully and really rewardingly is one where I get to go and listen and learn Mm -hmm. from all these different people who represent all these different tribes Um, and like there's just it's just welcoming like it feels like home no matter what tribe I go to visit which is just awesome because like I need a dose of that in order to go back and like click clack at my desk all day (laughs) So, like, I'm really grateful that it hasn't been such a terrifying experience that Mm -hmm. I thought that I couldn't do it Mm -hmm. in the end. There are a couple things I wanted to expand on there. Mm -hmm. And one thing specifically that I want to talk about is privilege, which is kind of the crux of, like, this week and everything that is going on in this country right now and was struck very heavily by the massive privilege, um, both capital P and lowercase p, that... I'm experiencing right now of like being able to say, Hey, I have a podcast. Come talk about Thanksgiving (laughs) (laughs) Um, as a white dude asking that of my native friend roommate. Um, But also like the massive privilege in the lowercase B sense of like having a community of people that is as broad and diverse and engaged Mm -hmm. and aware um, as I do. Like, but I also, like had had a moment where I needed to stop and check myself because it's like okay cool, you're doing the show. Why are you doing the show? Um, and I just wanted I kind of wanted to bring that into the space a little bit and be like, why am I doing this show? Like, why is it important to talk about this? Because well, you're asking 
you're asking me why we should do this show or you're reflecting on I'm reflecting, your I'm reflecting reasons. on my reasons and sort of and sort of I'm reflecting on my reasons for why I like why I think this is important because I do think I do think having this conversation is important. I'm just curious as to why why the feel why I feel the need to share with the world and have asked you to engage in that with me. <laughs> um, and I don't have a really good answer other than that I think it's important um, because I think it's a conversation that we are still having and I don't think we're having it enough and i don't know if that's and i don't know if that's a good enough reason this totally makes me i mean it makes me want to turn the question back on you though please do <laughs> and I mean, ask like why is it important because you know speaking about privilege it is a conversation that you can elect to have right yes. and i've elected to have this conversation i am not being coerced audience <laughs> i am yeah. very comfortable i have a glass of wine here <laughs> i feel great I you're said yes chair. to this conversation. You're in, you're in the chair. I'm in the chair, which I just realized was a thing when I walked in. I thought that you made that <laughs> up. Yeah. It's so cute. Um, um, yeah. Because this is something, so this is something that I sort of struggle with when it comes to like educating people about the issues, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that we're pretty much in agreement that a lot of times the people who find themselves in these heated dialogues or who are getting like the short end of the stick in terms of having to constantly defend themselves from, you know, cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. like offensive comments, microaggressions, like all of these things, we are often the ones that are in the educator position. Right. And I think that there is a base agreement that that's like not okay and yes. that it's not sustainable and it's exhausting for the person who is doing the educating. But like, it's important. I feel a responsibility to do it. Right. Right. Because you say it's a huge privilege for you to have a TV or I'm sorry, a TV show <laughs> guys were totes just on the radio. Um, Maybe someday. <laughs> so you say it's a privilege for you to have this podcast, but it's a privilege that you even asked me to share my voice about stuff like this. And I have had to be checked on that privilege before. Mm. Um, I was actually out in a tribal community not too long ago. And someone said, you know, we take for granted that all of these people fly us out to places and ask us what we think. And that when we stand up in a room, people are actually interested in what we have to say. Mm -hmm. And I got to say that I have totally taken that for granted. And I've just been like, I got to do this presentation. I got to do this meeting. I got to do this talk. Right. But like, People and because I work with youth, kids <laughs> don't get that opportunity all the time. They're like feeling so much, they're processing so much, and they don't really have an outlet like this or like a really super diverse group of friends in a place like Washington, D.C. with all of these avenues and channels for them to just get it off their chest. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I just have to acknowledge that, number one, that like this is a situation of privilege for me, too. But also, like, as we're doing this, like, educational work, it makes me wonder, like, what, why are you in this space? Because you don't have to be. It's twofold. It comes from talking about privilege and talking about historical awareness. Um, especially when you think about, when I think about people on the other side who don't react the way I do. When I think about white people who immediately react defensively to any not even like ask but opportunity for social and historical education that counters their current perception because narratives like the constructed narrative around thanksgiving or the narratives that were used to justify re-education or the narratives that are used to justify slavery or the narratives that are used to justify intensive immigration reform aka deporting a whole bunch of people for people for no reason hurt us not in the same way that they hurt the people they're directly affecting but they hurt the people who are denying who are denying them because they don't give them the opportunity to grow if we don't look at our history under a critical lens if we don't present history in a way that is honest and non-judgmental not which isn't to say that we're not saying something was a good thing or a bad thing but which is to which is saying this is the thing that happened we can have another conversation about whether or not it was good or bad 
I think it was fucking awful. But this is the thing that happened. And we have to look at that first because we can't get on board with what that actually was. And the and the honest, meaningful effects that follow from it, then we can't ever internalize it. And if we can't internalize it, then we can't learn from it. And if we can't learn from it, we can't do better. And I think that that conversation is really important. And I think that outside of an educational space, that's a conversation you and I have had before in one way or another. And I think I've said on the show before that one of the things I want to do with this thing is be the voice that says, okay, cool, this is what happened. And also be a space where other people can engage in that conversation and disagree with me or tell me I'm full of shit because sometimes I am. <laughs> like Sometimes I am just totally full of shit and it happens. It's rarely on purpose. Um, I was going to say never, but that's, you know, let's, let's be real. Whether or not it, it like, I, I feel a lot of existential pain about that conflict, about not engaging in that history in an honest way with people I care about, um, with extended family, mm-hmm. or, or with people I just meet and engage in conversation, conversations with because I like talking to people. Um, like, I, it, that causes me intellectual and emotional strife. But I think in the long term, and really at any given moment, it's causing, like, there is nothing there is nothing valuable about not having a full perspective um or having having a, an honest understanding of history whether whether however you want to in, then interpret that however however you want to interpret that history once you once you have a, a handle on it is is on you but i think that the 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 biggest impetus for this is that there are functional narrative fallacies in how we talk about native cultures but any minority group and because those and and therefore there are functional narrative fallacies about how we talk about ourselves as european as white european immigrants into this country whenever your whenever your ancestors immigrated they they weren't they weren't here we came here um and the fact that that is still a like that that is still a controversial statement <laughs> is is enough is enough to to make it important to keep having the conversation at some point i hope someone will listen to this well at some point i hope someone will listen to this podcast but at some point (laughs) way later on i hope someone will listen to this podcast and be like why are they why why are they even talking about this like everyone everyone knows this this is just like this is totally pointless um so yeah that's why i think it's (laughs) that's why i think it's important to do and that's a lot to unpack there's a lot there there is a lot. I mean, number one, there's the whole just getting the facts straight. Like we talk a lot about narratives, right? Like you can you can cherry pick different facts and you can create whatever you want. Um, but there's just uh, there are actual facts that are just real things that happened. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there used to be a time, boys and girls, <laughs> where fake news just wasn't wasn't something that you heard about all the time okay <laughs> like was, people was, <laughs> i feel like people used to tell the truth more i don't really know what happened i don't know well and, it, it, and if it was fake news it was just lying to you but actually now that i even say that i'm like um no actually i've like we've been lied to a lot so okay so let's just dive into this whole like thanksgiving sure. story right so what oh well let me ask you so what is the what's the story that you heard growing up before oh. you were woke or whatever well okay cool <laughs> I'm gonna, give, I'm gonna give a little bit of props to my to my father Paul. Okay. Um, shout out Paul. Shout out Paul. I got the same narrative that every kid in public school in the United States gets, which is the pilgrims. <laughs> the pilgrims came and they were fleeing the Church of England because Martin Luther had this really good idea about egalitarian churches, and like they came here and they really just wanted to help everybody, but they were dumb starving and so these these lovely people who who were magically here already came and then and then shared their food and it was a really good time and everyone was together so that was the narrative i got from school Mm -hmm. and then paul was like well no here's the thing about that not so much um (laughs) because like because you also get the 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 other side of that is this the you get this i don't know if it was just me but i remember the the story uh, like the narrative of Christopher Columbus the narrative of 
the of Thanksgiving and the narrative of the Nina, the, the Pinta, and the Santa Marina all kind of melding together in my head. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, Thanksgiving is just the first time white people came here. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I got was, well, no, that's not true because the Vikings came over way, way, way earlier. And some of them stayed and that was a whole thing. Um, and then it was, well, they were starving but it wasn't like a give-share moment. It was a, we're going to come in and take that because we need it. Um, it's cold and we don't really know how the flora and fauna here work. But you <laughs> do. So rather than, you know, trying to engage in, you know, some sort of conversation with you because we're already coming and trying to, you know, take this landing for ourselves. Um, we're just going to take that and kill you if you get in our way. And that was kind of not the beginning of the ball rolling, but like the, 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 when I, when I think of like the, the, the pebbles falling down the hill, turning into a a rock slide, turning into an avalanche, that was where that conceptualizes in my Mm -hmm. mind. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) so a few things (laughs) about the story. Um, I think it gives off this... (laughs) This idea that Indians didn't know how to deal with outsiders, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, well, okay. Well, in your story, actually, there's like the idea of the friendly Indian, right? Like the friendly Indian Mm -hmm. just comes Mm -hmm. like out of the woods and here you are and you're starving and we teach you how to like work the land because we've been here and we have complex agricultural systems of our (laughs) own and you don't really know what you're doing because you're not from here. Mm -hmm. So like you're welcome. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now you're doing really well and you want to like celebrate that by having your first harvest feast, which by the way is something that native people have been doing forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, their celebrations follow seasons right like it's not about it's great like the npr 1a show on indigenous people's day like one Mm -hmm. of the speakers was like we don't really do holidays after like celebrating people like that's not a thing we do it's Mm -hmm. about celebrating a time (laughs) um a moment so (laughs) what really happened during one of the earliest thanksgiving quote-unquote Um, gatherings was that the Pequot people were celebrating and they were doing their, I think it's the green corn harvest that they did every year. Um, And there were like 700, I think it was this really huge, huge gathering. And they were ambushed by um, English and Dutch um, mercenaries. Mm -hmm. And so they basically were like, you know, they told all the men to come outside Um, and those who did were shot. Those who did not come out were set on fire. And, uh, following that quote unquote battle, which isn't really a battle if you're coming in and attacking unarmed people. Mm -hmm. And we're talking men, women, children, elders, everybody. After that, they thought it was a cause for celebration. You know, look at us. We are victorious. This land is ours. We're affirmed once again. Let's have a party. And so uh, there you have (laughs) one of the first sorts of Thanksgiving gatherings. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So and it was it was bloody. It was violent. They killed more Indians. So then they had to have another party. And then finally it was just like, you know what? Let's just do this one time a year. We're going to keep killing the Indians. But, you know, the parties (laughs) are just getting. Yeah, they're getting exhausting, you know, so just pick a day. (laughs) Um, and we'll just celebrate them all at one time i've also read before that you know as a form of entertainment at some of these gatherings they would take the impaled heads of natives and just kick them around in the street like soccer balls like that was just a um good old that was your thanksgiving entertainment you know Hmm. certainly not a uh, redskins cowboys football game or is it Oh, God. Because you know that's happening this year. I know. On Thanksgiving. God, the irony. Isn't that awesome? It's just... <laughs> Isn't it just it's sickening? It's so impressively tone deaf. Like, I'm I'm disgusted to the point of being a little impressed. <laughs> if, if, if I wasn't already certain that the NFL is just a viciously corrupt and racist organization, mm-hmm. I would think they were poking fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little, you know, 
You would think that somebody would stop it, you know, and say, hey, it might not be a good thing to just to schedule this game on that day. Maybe we'll just push it back a couple weeks or something. I mean, that would be kind of cool. No, <laughs> just give it, us something. It, it, just a little. Just, a <laughs> just li- give us something. Just Yeah. Literally anything else. Yeah. But anyway, so like the narratives, right? Yeah. Like you talk about the narratives, you can spin it any way you want to. But like the fact is that like people were killed. Yeah. Right. That that settlers were here and they were pissed because somebody was on the land that they wanted. OK, so you have to just clear them off. For some reason, it's not an option to treat them as sovereign, you know, self-governing political bodies. You immediately think, I need to conquer them and kill them and get them out of here. That's just so interesting to me. I've... (laughs) I've wondered about it from like a psychopathological mm-hmm, <laughs> standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it in a person or a group of people that enables it to get to that level? I have yeah. an idea. Oh, so have actually, an idea. no, I had this thought. I had this thought because <laughs> there's something. So what, celebrating holidays around a person. So here's the thing mm. with that. When I think about the European tradition, I see that coming from two places, monarchies mm-hmm. and Christianity um, because the saints days and, and really the two kind of develop hand in hand. I there, I'm sure there are some really good religious or uh, there are some really good European scholars and some really good religious scholars who would be able to help me pinpoint that, but they kind of go hand in hand. When you think about European holidays, um, you think about they're all built around the saints days. The big ones are saints days. Um, or, or, you know, they were big saints that then got elevated because they were, they correlated with certain times of year and then they, and then, you know, you found more reasons to celebrate the thing, um, or a king co-opted it and be, made it his day and then it became something else. And when you think about European colonization, it's divine mandate. Like if the king or the queen has divine, a divine mandate to rule, and they get the idea that we should go take some stuff. That's God saying it's yours. <laughs> and that's super, that's super, super um, derivative isn't the word. That's uh, like, it, that's boiling it down to a point that it, we can, we can argue about whether or not that's a reasonable interpretation or not. But what it comes down to is God said, this land is ours. So it is. And if you disagree with us, we're just going to make you go away. We're, we're like, we're just going to make that. We're going to make the disagreement stop being there. Um, however, it needs to be done, whether that's killing you, whether that's doing everything we can to assimilate aspects of your culture into our culture, um, whether that's enslaving you in mass numbers or trying to. Um, and that, that was the, that's the structure that was the the whole push um which then justifies the narrative shift of we have to be the good guys here like we have to be the good like if god is saying we should do this we have to be the good guys and if god isn't saying we should do this and the king is saying we should do this and the king is the person who makes sure that i get paid or makes sure that we still have access to trade routes then we still have to be the good guys. We have to be on the side of right. Otherwise, the social structure that allows for this to happen falls apart, and then you're left holding the bag. Like, what do you do? This is why I feel like the Thanksgiving narrative is the beginning of that narrative shift, because you see it throughout the entirety of the structure of U.S. Native relations. Like it's the, the, the historical whitewashing and, and narrative shifting is all about making us the good guys because, yeah. Well, yeah. So the overarching narrative is that, you know, we get here and you don't have anything set up. Like there's no fences around anything. So it's not like anybody actually owns anything around here. And, you know, your structures don't look like our structures and maybe your government doesn't look like ours. You don't make decisions in the way that we do. So you need our help. Savages, (laughs) Savages, <laughs> which is I, mm, which yeah. again is so ironic to me because it's like, yet you're the ones who were starving. So, 
So you then have to do the work of coming in and saving us yes. and like hand, like giving us all of your technology and making mm-hmm. us wear your clothes and speak your language because like yours is superior. Yeah. But all the time, those are war tactics against us because Absolutely. you know that our strength comes in, you know, being tied to a community, um, having a language that is all of our own, having our own customs, having our own government structures having our own agricultural policies like i said and the thing is like natives there were many 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 different tribes Mm -hmm. right when settlers arrived so it's not as though there was just this one massive tribe right right? and you just like this was like oh my gosh this is the first time we got to deal with someone who's different than us Mm -hmm. no we had been dealing with different tribes and everybody has their own way of doing things but you create agreements as sovereign political entities okay that dictate how you are going to live together and mm-hmm. coexist right. in a space, right. right? But so all of that goes out the window when these settlers are now looking at us as like one monolithic people right? and treating us as such and saying like, no matter, I don't care what kind of Indian you are. I don't care like what tribe you are. That doesn't matter. You're just occupying valuable space. You are using up resources and you're not even doing anything with them, right? Right. Right. You're not. Right. So then you have to create huge. First of all, you have to deal with what has been referred to throughout history as the Indian problem. And you do that by enacting all of these different policies, which is just like really crazy to me because you can't like you didn't you had no claims to the land. (laughs) But then all of a sudden you get here and the land is yours. And so you then write all of these laws Mm -hmm. that tell us all of the ways in which we can't sell that land, we can't use that land, we can't access it, and actually, you know what? You can actually get up and and you can, <laughs> and you can, you can, go, go you can just other, leave. You can just leave. Land. Yeah. Right? We'll give you some other land, which, mm-hmm. by the way, was just unfarmable. Mm-hmm. It was like totally foreign. You know, like when you take people who have been living on the East Coast, like that's a very different climate than Oklahoma. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was the the goal was always to break apart our systems whether those were family systems or, again, the agricultural systems, our food systems was a big one, just starving us, like killing all of the bison just so that we wouldn't have it, Mm -hmm. like not even really using it the way we did for tools, for food, for shelter, all of that, um, all of that, Um, breaking up our families, like adopting or not adopting, but taking away Indian children and placing them with white families so that they would assimilate, Mm -hmm. like that is a war tactic. It was just all meant to break apart any systems that would give us any sort of fighting chance to have these little nations within your nation (laughs) that you're trying to build. Well, I mean, even even the basis of that, the the well, we're going to write this down because you guys haven't written anything down. And like we like we've got we've got a whole structure of how to how to make sure that, you know, who owns what and you put it on paper and like here and you sign it and it's done. And see, we signed it. We, but we did it. We did the thing. Like if you put it down, we did the thing. Mm-hmm. I, and <laughs> like that, just that, that. But you did a thing that doesn't mean anything here. It, well, exactly. Exactly. Like it was. It was, and it's a really effective war tactic. Like it's, it is a really effective series of war tactics that I think, like we're like as is exampled by, we're still dealing with the repercussions of it. There's an argument to say that those tactics are still being implemented. There is still a violent conflict that is happening now, even though it has shifted in its nature and has sort of moved, moved into a systematic subterfuge. It's like, it's inside of it. It's so pervasive that it's written into the base laws that still exist in this country, but predate this country. And I don't know what we do to fix that. (laughs) And I think that's like, I don't think anybody has like, all of the answers on what to do to fix that. Some sort of reparations. Yeah. That would be cool. That would be cool. I mean, free education and free housing to start. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> like gr- granted, I'm on the side of we should just we should just do that for everybody. Like we should just do that. Like why? Are you charging people I mean, for I don't, school? right. But I just, but, I also don't know like how you come back from that. Like we were, <laughs> I, 
I really I don't know how you fix it because even if you know say in my lifetime that happens right that everybody gets free housing everybody gets free education and you have access to these ways to build something for yourself and <laughs> I don't know succeed in terms of whatever America thinks <laughs> success looks like whatever the United States defines that as yeah. but how do you how do you compensate people for language loss or for genocide or like teachings and songs and ceremonies that haven't been practiced for like hundreds of years? How do you get that back? You don't really get that back. No. So, and again, any compensation you're giving us is by accepting it. I, I feel I'm implicitly acknowledging that like your idea of compensation is sufficient. And the thing is that our systems have never really meshed well. We had our own way of doing things. Mm -hmm. You had your own way of doing your stuff. So why does that make sense in terms of the reparation of in terms of the reparations argument? Like, I don't I don't know how to fix it. I get like really frustrated because Mm -hmm. I'm a problem solver Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I don't really know how to do that because then also what is the criteria for being eligible to receive reparations right right then we go back to this whole thing like you have to prove who you are but prove it by my standards of what it means to have native identity right and that is like such a huge issue in our communities Mm -hmm. and again it's a consequence of a war tactic Mm -hmm. if you get us to fight amongst ourselves then we're weaker yep so now you have all of this stuff dealing with like blood quantum and people trying to decide who is and is not native enough like what is nativeness is it like knowing your language i mean it can't really be knowing your language across the board because people were beaten for speaking their native languages literally beaten sexually assaulted in Indian boarding schools when they were being made to assimilate. Mm -hmm. So is it (laughs) uh, phenotypical? People will say, is that, is that the right word for that? Yes. So people will look at me, for instance, and say like, oh, like you have super curly hair. You're not a hundred percent native. Are you like, people are so obsessed with that being able to say like, oh, she's a full blooded Indian. Right. And so to me, all I can say is like, you know, my parents are native. Their parents are native. Their parents are native, blah, 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 all that stuff. But nobody, nobody is 100 percent. And what is this stupid idea of 100 percent anyway? We never did that as tribal nations. We were just it was a community. You contributed to your community. And that is where your membership was. Um your loyalty to the community as a whole. And none of this hair color, skin color, how like whether you live on or off a reservation, whether you're a part of a state recognized tribe, a, you know, a federally recognized tribe, mm-hmm. like none of that is mm-hmm. constructed by us. There are two things, two things come to mind for me. The first was like, this is why it's really important for these conversations to happen and this is why it's really important for everybody to get on the same page because you can't even start talking about a solution until you agree that there is a broader problem and it needs to be solved in a way where everyone feels like there's a resolution and part of that is acknowledging it's never gonna feel great this shit happened and it was fucked (laughs) and will never not be fucked and like I will never not be complicit in experiencing a whole bunch of really, really good things because of all of this terrible history. That's just never going to happen because it's done. Like it's already happened. I'm never going to be like, never going to be able to not do that and not have that experience. But then also, what do I do with that? Like, even if even but no, I'm saying even when you recognize the privilege, right? And you recognize that you're complicit in this system that has just been set up to favor you. Mm -hmm. Right. Even that, like, I look at that and I think, oh, like he's sort of he's he's remorseful and he's aware. Right. Mm -hmm. But what does that do? So the I think the reason that's the reason that's important 
is that it's shitty because that's the baseline I feel like that's the baseline I need to be at. Like, I just, like, yes, you gotta absolutely. get there so that you can have a conversation at absolutely. all. And, like, it's important to get people there. And, right. And, and then, I'm, and I'm yeah. not discounting it oh, at no, all. No, 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 no. But yeah. I am also saying, like, in terms of tangible, <laughs> actionable, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, what do you do? First of all, like, also, you mm. are in that space, right? And part of, like, a good ally is bringing other people into the space that you're already in, right? Right. Of this like higher understanding, this openness right. to okay. like to a- actual facts, real things that happen, terrible, ugly parts of our history. Yeah. Um, but then what do you do past that? Like what is a system level <laughs> change that you can enact? And that's like to start no, to repair. And this is like this is like the because like the forward facing thing is then like I believe perhaps uh perhaps foolishly, um that enough people like that in the same room will start to come up with better solutions because I like, I, I, I know that I am an intelligent person. I know that I have a creative mind. I know that I have a capacity to think of a lot of ideas. And I think that part of like, part of the challenge for me in talking about these solutions is recognizing Acknowledging that I'm going to have to take a step back, questioning whether or not I should feel some serious negative consequence as someone who has been on the upside of that privilege, whether whether that negative consequence needs to be part of that reparations and like trying very hard to acknowledge, like to acknowledge the part of the two parts of me, the one that wants to not experience discomfort and pain that wants to seek out the life I want to seek out and, and who believes that my joy contributes to the broader sum of human happiness and therefore is a good thing. And the part of me that recognizes that like there's a scale, like in the current social structure, there is a scale. And when you tip one end, something else has to tip down and maybe that's not going to fall straight on my head, but like that, that, that weight has to get counterbalanced somewhere, I think. Um, and so trying to figure out where those two things, how to keep those two things in line. And I think, I think that the more people who think like me, um, who think like me and look like me, the more people I have in that, in that space of like acknowledgement and awareness who can say, yes, okay, this is going to suck. And we're all signing up for it. Because sometimes, and like, I know I'm not, I know I'm never alone in any of this. I know that there are massive communities of people who are trying to work towards positive solutions. And it's, I think it's always easier to, to like dive headfirst into a thing when you don't feel like you're going in as alone. Um, which leads into the second part of where I think like the war tactic bites us both ways because the whole idea of going in alone is such bullshit and is really us just creating this idea of these false structural identities that we have to abide by. Um, like I think that, I think that how you identify is extremely important. It gives, it helps you to talk to the world and it helps you to talk to yourself about yourself. Um, and I think that we place so much emphasis on the wrong parts. Like we being the, current political and social majority in the United States puts so much emphasis on the wrong parts of that. Like to the point that like the fact that we're not having a conversation about why whiteness is even a thing, like the idea of like whiteness as opposed, like as opposed to Irish or Scottish or German or Belgian or Italian, like being of European descent has this massive swath of cultural background, but we get to live under this massive umbrella um, and I think that's like, that's the other side of it. Like we have to solve those, those two things first. We have to solve our refusal as, as a, as a, as an assigned culture to look at our history and in that same space to recognize that this culture is assigned and that we hold on to that assignment because of the privilege and safety that it gives us 
And then until we do that, until we really get on board with that, um, I think on mass, we're not gonna come to the easy solution first. Like we're not going to come to the, the path of least resistance because we're going to be fighting ourselves on one side or the other, no matter what. That makes me really sad. Which part? A year and a half ago, I would have said we were the measure of it. The what? The measure of it, that we could do it. I, I And I mean, I still believe we can as people, as our shared community in this space. But more and more, I feel like the world is telling us that we can't. I think there are lots of really good examples around the world of us fighting very hard to hold on to all of the mistakes that we've made. Because it's much more comfortable to be the bad guys trying to convince ourselves that we're the good guys than it is to be the good guys recognizing that we weren't up until now. I... um. <clears throat> I think I told you about this, but when I was in college, there was this um, retreat that you could apply to go on, and it was a very small group of students, and you got together, and basically for a weekend, you talked about intersectionality of identity, and so there was like a day devoted to gender, one devoted to sexual orientation, then race, then one more, can't quite remember what that was. Oh, socioeconomic status, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember at the end just feeling, you know, every single day had a different exercise that was both traumatic in some cases and then cathartic in others. And I remember at the end just feeling empty. We talked a lot about labels. And at mm -hmm. the end, I weirdly felt like I had lost all my labels by airing all of my stuff during this retreat. Yeah. And I kept thinking... I should feel good right now because I don't have, I'm not like carrying all of this stuff that I let define me every single day. Like as a poor queer indigenous woman, you know, I fe somehow feel like those labels have been lifted off of me. So why don't I feel lighter? And it was just weird to like be really sad and just miss the feeling of those labels like it was a heaviness that was absent and I was uncomfortable without it and it has made me think a couple of times since what if I lived in a place in a world in which these labels that I've carried for so long ceased to mean what they've meant to form me in the way that I've been formed and I weirdly just don't like it like I had gotten to a point where it was just like I was walking around and just seeing like humans you know and just believing that like people were seeing me as just a human you know none of this other stuff um and I really didn't like it <laughs> I don't know what to do with that so like if you talk about you know the ideal world and like, I can't even imagine how crazy it would be, like, if I had great-great-grandchildren or something who just, like, for them, I hope that that's the case. Yeah. But for them, like, n this conversation was, it didn't make it sense. Didn't I don't know. That's so wild. But I guess it must be wild for some people to see their grandkids in today's world, right? Like, you know, <laughs> right? Like, um, you know, me being totally okay with the fact that, like, my hair is coarse and curly and not feeling like I need to straighten it in order to be whatever mm -hmm. perception of native someone else needs me to portray. Um, or just being loud about being native in the first place, like mm -hmm. actually wanting to introduce myself in my language. I bet for some people, for some elders, that's probably wild mm -hmm. because they or their parents were getting beaten for the same things. Yeah. I think emptiness is the right word. That feeling of like, cool. I'm letting go of a lot of the baggage that I've held on to. Or have let go of it. And I'm like fully realizing like, okay, cool. I've left a lot of that behind. And feeling like really unsure. Like this, like unsure of like what I want to be. Because I'm no longer even like, I'm no longer ascribing any of those things to myself. So I like, 
it's not even society telling me what I want to be. It's that I'm not telling me what I want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that choice is, that choice is interesting and, and a little bit challenging, which, which makes it easier for me to look at people not wanting to let go of either their, you know, either the narrative they've constructed for themselves or, you know, a, a, a real, like, I think there's, there, there's also a, a temptation to say, okay, cool. It happened. So what? Like this is who we were, and we're not that anymore. Um, without really looking at, I mean, if the systems, yeah, if the systems change, then fine, whatever. Like I'm okay with that. The thing, the issue with people saying that right now, that like this happened in the past, and like it doesn't matter anymore. It's just like it actually does matter. Like the fact that, like I can, (laughs) that I call the cabs for me and my partner. That I book the Airbnbs for me and my partner, who is a black man. Like, if the systems change, (laughs) and that is no longer a thing, and that sort of, like, discrimination and prejudice doesn't exist anymore, then, okay, cool. Like, I might be able to sort of let this go and get comfortable with that emptiness. But there are are just way too many consequences Mm -hmm. right now. Like, daily life, for me as a woman of color is way different than daily life. I'd imagine for a cis straight white male. Yeah. Um, I I think that's probably true. (laughs) And like by virtue of nothing else other than like, I am other. Right. Like literally nothing else, nothing else. Even that phrase is so fucking insane. I know. Like, but I appreciate that you're calling out like, it makes me want to tear my fucking hair out. I know. I appreciate that you're calling out whiteness because that's really like what all these conversations are about. It's yeah. about it's whiteness. Like that's what everything else is being defined against. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about this until just now. I'm going to caveat with this is a thought I just had. I'm not sure how true this is. Okay. I hadn't really understood the massive backlash to queer and especially trans people. Hmm. Until I realized that the so there are two things that hold up the substantive privilege: it's maleness and whiteness. And queer and trans communities take away the permanence of maleness, like the, like recognizing mm-hmm. that gender is fluid, and that like not it's not just not just your sexuality that is fluid, but gender is fluid, and that you it you fall into a spectrum that takes away the power of that thing to hold it up. And so, yeah, I think so as we're, as we're getting, as we as a society are getting more comfortable with having that conversation and see, and, and seeing the, the upshot of embracing the gray, embracing the complexity, acknowledging that that spectrum is empowering and valuable for everyone. The next big, the, the next and last big thing right now, the next thing is whiteness. Like, how do we how do we dissolve that idea? Because if you dissolve the concept of whiteness, you take away the power of otherness. Because everyone is other, and if everyone is other, then like, it's it's just it's it is the norm. We are all different. We are all complicated, unique individuals, and that's not just like the fluffy. We are all unique snowflakes. I'm not. Um, <laughs> Shout out Monty Python. Um, also, shout out using comedy to deal with difficult emotional spaces. Yes. Um, <laughs> like if we're if we're able to really really lean into that, then then I think the converse, then I think the conversation about what reparations look like or what a culture that is able to embrace the complexity of our past and the capacity for good of our future as people sharing a space not people trying to create a space that other people can fit into like that's when that really good stuff starts happening that's when that's when we start really being able to make a world we all want to be in and can fully be ourselves in and i think one of one of the challenges that's going to come up in that space is the pushback between how do we make a better future for everyone and the very natural human instinct to want to settle the scale. 
I'm not going to say that it's not right. I'm never going to say that it's not right to want to settle the score. I am kind of curious about how we do that. Yeah. Because the score is real fucked. Yeah. Like if you if you look at the atrocities column, like there is no contention here. Like we 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 know. I wonder if and I hope for a future that is about how do we make a society that tries every day to make sure people are their truest and best selves. Like, how do we acknowledge that? How do we think about that? And like, this is like way out there utopian shit. Like this is, this is like, this is like how, this is not even socialism. This is like emotional socialism. (laughs) Is there a way that we can embrace and lift up cultures that we have spent so much time driving down so that everyone feels cared for and supported and heard and appreciated because I think that's, that's the best solution I can think of. Yeah. Well, just know that it's a very resource intensive solution. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, it is. I mean, cause let's just think about like higher education, right? So native Americans are the, I believe least represented minority group in terms of higher education, in terms of, you know, attaining higher education degrees. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, okay, you think about like, all right, how do we, how do we fix that? So funding is one thing, right? Like you want to make sure that people have the necessary financial resources to be able to go wherever they want to go, right? Like if you're smart enough to get in, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to go there and enjoy your time there. But then what happens when you actually get on campus and you don't see anybody who looks like you or you don't see anybody who you don't meet anybody who's also native and can like deal with the inevitable, I guess, culture shock of going to a place where you're less than one percent of the population all the time and nobody just really gets it like nobody gets it. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that. And then. Afterwards, you know, if we are so poorly represented in these spaces of higher education, then who are your mentors? You don't even really have a lot of people that you can turn to to say, this is the experience I'm having. So what you're doing instead of that is paying it forward and trying to be a mentor to someone else, which also kind of exhausts more of your capacity (laughs) as a person. Because there's this burden of... Not a burden. It's not a burden to give back to your community, but the expectation of giving back to your community while you're trying to do a really hard thing Mm -hmm. that maybe not a lot of people around you have done before is kind of difficult. And increased. It's an increased emotional cost. Yes, absolutely. So what I'm saying is even if you change like even one part of the system, there's 10 other changes you have to make. In terms of like, so allyship. So allyship is the other thing, right? Like having more, if you're not going to have more people from that community (laughs) that you're trying to lift up to be in those supportive spaces, then you have to have really bomb ass allies that can fill it in. And to do that, you have to like, and to do that, you have a whole other set of structural things that you have to shift. Like this is... This is what I keep. Like, That's the annoying part. The annoying is part that is you like, think you solve one part of it, and it's or you, just like yes. everything has to. I know it, it all has to rise together. I know. So and it drives as, me fucking crazy. Yeah, I know. So it's very, it's yeah, it's exhausting, mm-hmm. right? And we keep doing it. And like so, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so heavy because these are things you know for people who are from those communities. Like you think about it all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. It's an added an added layer of your existence. <laughs> yeah. As long as you exist, you will be dealing with stuff like this. Yeah. All the time. Um, for me, it's kind of funny because I oscillate between like, let's just burn this to the ground and start over. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a more and more viable option. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and the other side, <laughs> right. And the other side is like, so I work with young people who are super civically engaged and who just by virtue of being young are way less jaded than I am. <laughs> so they're so hopeful and so optimistic and just motivated. Right. So that to me 
is like, okay, Amber, maybe don't burn it. Mm-hmm. You know, give them a second. Mm-hmm. They're figuring it out. They have the energy to do that sort of problem solving. And all I can do is just be in awe and just do whatever I can to support. Because I think that if you are that young and dealing with the angst of just being a young person, period, mm-hmm. on top of like coming to terms with your identity, on top of coming to terms with what that identity means for you and the consequences that you will deal with on a daily that just don't mm-hmm. even make sense and aren't fair but will always be there you're dealing with all of that and yet you're saying like no i'm i'll fix it i'm gonna fix it so i am just like okay okay all right cool here for you you got i appreciate you yeah selfishly you inspire me Mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of amazing i hate to say that the children really are our future (laughs) it's just like but legit though like because this i like i feel this way when i look at my little (laughs) Uh, sexual chocolate <laughs> I had to <laughs> I feel this way when I look at my little sister um, yeah. who is this adorable little 13 year old I don't even know man she's just like she's she she just does her thing yeah and she's hella smarter than I was at 13 yeah. and way more aware yeah um, and like growing up in the same community I did, yeah. which was pretty aware, is just way more cognizant, way more conscious. Well, yeah, I feel the same way about my brother. He's 21 and one of the few young people that's really trying to study our language and bring it back and make it more of a part of everyday life. Um, and he's studying to be a horticulturist. So he also wants to, you know, work with elders and youth around traditional agricultural practices and farming our own indigenous plants that were here way before settlers arrived and finding ways to um, use old practices to do that stuff and incorporating the language. Like he's got all these really, really great ideas Mm -hmm. and he's so smart. It's just like he... I guess reads constantly. I should have really consulted him before I did this show. Actually, he would have told me like 10 different things that I needed to cover. But it's just like he and his um, his peers are just at this really interesting place where it's very cool to be, you know, native and like super immersed in your culture and know your language and all of that stuff. So I, I want to be a part of that, but I'm sort of like one step removed. Um, I'm I'm getting to be part of the old folks group now. yeah i think we'll get there yeah i hope so I'm trying to think of like last thoughts on this whole that's what i'm trying i'm like i'm trying to not even like not, not even a thanksgiving mess i'm trying to think yeah. of like a good like but but using thanksgiving as like a centerpiece for the last thoughts thanksgiving and what you learn about columbus day and everything else that you learn about native people it's just like you said it's all this constructed narrative that keeps certain people in power and certain people without power and unfortunately there's just a lack of information first of all and typically you're taught things like thanksgiving was you know this happy gathering and really it was a celebration of a continued genocide (laughs) um you're taught that like it's okay to root for the home team when the home team is called the redskins when really Redskins was a term that was used to refer to the bloodied bodies left behind after people literally cut the scalps out of off of native peoples in order to just sell them and get a bounty from the federal government. So you are missing very critical stories, very critical facts that can help you wrap your head around all these things that people seem to be griping about or seem to be oversensitive about. And just like, and building on that until we get our head right around the narrative, we can't build new ones. We can't, you can't build a shared narrative that is forward facing until everybody's on the same page about the historical narrative. And again, the conversation of the good and the bad it comes next. But before we can have that, we have to have the conversation around agreement in terms of the historical narrative and what that looks like. 
So just that, the facts. Just the facts. <laughs> just the facts. That's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Amber at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests. As Amber mentioned at the top of the episode, neither of us are experts on U.S. federal Indian policy. If you want to learn more about the subject, check out An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz and the work of Dr. Adrian Keene, Cherokee professor at Brown University. Links to their work and additional resources are at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests and on the episode page. You can find out more about the show at applyingtoeverything.xyz. We're on iTunes and Google Play, where you can subscribe to, rate, and review the show. If you're in the D.C. area and you don't get enough of me on the podcast, check out Laugh Index Theater's Cloaking Device, a long-form improv team I perform with at the D.C. Art Center in Adams Morgan. We're doing a special holiday show, Sunday, December 10th at 8 p.m. You can find tickets and our show schedule at laughindextheater.com. Thanks to Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount St. Misery, off of The Great Resolve, available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. I'd also like to thank Kiara Scartella for designing our logo. Tune in next time for my conversation with Charlie Germano about cybersecurity, the difference between politics and policy, and ways to make the world better in our everyday lives. Talk to you then.